Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Welcome, everybody, to episode 21 of Lean Whiskey. I'm Mark Graven. We're joined, as usual, by... Jamie Flinchball. Good to see everybody. And uh, as as Mark knows, I, I'm now in yet another location, uh, all within my house, but uh, um, always trying to find the, the proper non-office location for a whiskey. Uh, um, I'm only half, half-hearted effort today. I'm in my office, but in a in a good drinking chair, perhaps. Yeah. Well, I'm in Texas this time in the office chair. I'll try to mix it up a little better going forward. Yeah. Anyway, um, those of you who can see the video on YouTube know that we've got a guest. So I'm like, oh, this is like a mystery reveal to the listeners. Uh, But we're joined today. You're right to roll your eyes at me, Tom. We're joined by Tom Ehrenfeld. Tom, how are you, man? I'm good. Thank you very much. It's it's really exciting to be here. Uh, it's fun. Um, I'm joining from my home office, which is the room I just is my cave. Which <laughs> I spend all my time here. Um, <laughs> so we've got um, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Massachusetts represented here today. Yeah, but yeah, this is fun. So I'm going to call out the eye rolling if I see if I see. It. <laughs> Well, I, I, I do a podcast for LAI and we record it with video, but I've, we only release it with audio. Yeah. Um, so the video is just, I haven't done one that's video before. I'm, 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 I'm sure I will not want to watch it after we tape it. None of us ever. Well, <laughs> yeah. We, we don't, we don't have to watch ourselves, but, uh, you know, while we're bothering to do it, especially this format, right? This this format is very casual, and and uh, you know, it's just in this case, three guys sitting around drinking whiskey and talking talking shop. So uh, you know, we, we're not we're not judging ourselves or what we say. Uh, so it's it's all all nice and relaxed and casual. Well, what, well, speak for yourself, Jamie. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so hey, I'm gonna pour, I'm gonna pour a little something. But maybe while I'm doing that, Tom, you mentioned the Lean Enterprise Institute. I'm sure our listeners know who and what LAI is, but I'm going to give you the floor if you want to tell the listeners a little bit more about you and the work you do. Um, My background is in journalism, actually. So, I mean, the long road is that I started uh, writing when I graduated college. I was a journalist writing for the Cambridge Chronicle went into business journalism, uh, worked on staff for Harvard Business Review, CFO, and then Inc. Magazine, which I loved. Went solo when my younger daughter, Haley, was born about 23 years ago. (laughs) And pretty soon after, met uh, Jim Womack. And he was developing a book with Dan Jones that became Lean Solutions. And he offered me a couple manuscripts that uh, they were looking at, one of which was The Gold Mine by Michael Ballet. And I was just honored to work on each of them as kind of, um, you know, the editor. 
and thus began a long uh, working relationship with Jim, mm -hmm. his partners, and with LAI. Um, I've been affiliated with them since for about 15 years. Yeah. And I worked on um, many of Michael's books, Michael Ballet, The Gold Mine, um, Lean Manager, Lead with Respect, The Lean Sensei. Um, I worked with Jim on Lean Solutions and edited his, uh, he had a monthly e-letter that he wrote for LAI. Um, I then started working with John Shook, who I love. Yeah. Um, I was the editor on uh, Managing to Learn. And basically, I've, I've done quite a lot of work with LAI. I'm still associated with them. Um, I've also, through that kind of emanated to others, I worked on both of Art Burns' books, uh, big fan of art. So that's the kind of long and short. I still work with um, LAI. I think nine of my books have won, sh won Shingo Awards. I was just about to ask you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I counted. It's nine. I think yeah. also two books I did, I edited for Dan Markovitz have won. Uh -huh. um, there's Art Byrne, there's Shook, there's uh, Jim and, um, you know, Dan Jones and Ballet. I think that's it. and. Actually, a couple of my favorites did not win. Um, one of them being Gamble Walks uh -huh. by by Womack, which didn't qualify because it was a collection. But I'm I'm really fond of that one. And collection of those e letters that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, and there was there was a original writing. Um, and the other one is a little more controversial. It was Lean Strategy, uh -huh. which honestly some folks hated. Um, that came out a couple years ago, um, McGraw-Hill and a bunch of authors. But I always, I'm really fond of that book and loyal to it. And I think the, the essential message it, it shared was um, important. And it may have fallen short in execution, um, but long and short. <laughs> I've had just the privilege of working with a lot of the better known lean thinkers of the last 15 years. And when I met Jim and kind of learned what this was all about, I had done a lot of business writing and I said, I don't need to cover anything else. This is a system with integrity. It's, it's really about people and it, 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 it has grit. It's not some cynical model invented by a consultancy to sell man, women, people hours. I, I really believed in it then. I believe in it now. Mm -hmm. And that has made the, it's just animated the work and made it a delight. And that I'm, you know, pardon if I'm monologuing, but uh, that, that's my kind of background. And so I'm, I'm still working with LAI and still working with other writers. And I used to write more of my own stuff and I, I'm, I'm sure I will fiddle with the knobs and mm -hmm. increase that. Yeah. yeah. So um, you should, we talked about, I'm going to crack my whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll talk about the whiskey in a minute, but um, as far as introductions and, and who goes back with, with whom uh, Tom and I met when I was, some people might not know, I was an employee of the Lean Enterprise Institute when my wife was, um, 
at MIT for a year doing a graduate program. And so that was June of 2009 to June of 20 and 2010. So that's where Tom and I crossed paths and, and we have sat and talked shop over uh, a cocktail. I remember we had dinner at, uh, at Craigie on Main, which is an amazing restaurant there in Cambridge. Well, I think you're not doing it justice, Mark. Um, I recognized your writing before you came to LAI and saw this guy who was really prolific and almost annoyingly so, <laughs> you know, kind of read everything, had opinions on everything, and um, honestly did it really consistently well. It's just so intelligent and connected. And I believe I put in a word for you at LAI. Oh, thank you. I think I had a small... Um, I, I know I, I spoke highly of you, so I was really excited <laughs> that you were there for, uh, you know, not that long, but long enough. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we crossed paths now. Jamie and Tom are in a way meeting, even though you have corresponded and know each other a little. Yeah. We, I other. mean, you know, I, I really hope Tom's point about uh, writing his own stuff. Uh, I hope he, he, <laughs> he definitely picks the pen up for, for that. Uh, uh, cause I've, I've enjoyed the stuff he's written himself, uh, as much as anything, anything that's just been, been the, the editor role, but, but Tom and I have tracked, I think tracked each other and emailed and corresponded over the years going back, uh, probably quite, quite a long ways. Um, uh, lots of similar interests in in pursuit of startups and, uh, uh, through, through the lean, the lean world. So, um, yeah, this is. This is the joys of, of Zoom is the opportunity to, to finally meet in person over a drink um, as yeah. we haven't had the opportunity before. So, And I'm going to give a, a quick shout out um, for Tom and the WLEI podcast. And like, in, so I remember in particular um, Dan Heath from the book Upstream. I'm, I'm not, not getting the wrong Heath brother, am I? Nope, Dan. Dan. And I loved that book. I got, I pre-ordered it and it came out and I was like, oh, maybe I can do a podcast with him. And then I heard the episode Tom did and I'm like, well, I, there's no reason to bother him with another podcast on <laughs> just shared what you did with Dan. That, that was uh, in particular one that I really enjoyed. You're very, very kind, sir. We'll see if that, if that, if that continues after a whiskey or two. <laughs> <laughs> So do I get to pour? Do I yeah. want, you get to you get to pour? So do I do you want to talk about whiskey and then go back to our other? Yeah, let's let's start off with whiskey. So we we were uh, uh, we were talking about what to drink, and I think this might be the maybe the second time we've done this where we all have the same brand. Um, okay. The this is all Highland Park. Um, I, I think uh, so. Mine's the the twelve year old. Uh, yeah. As as is Tom's, uh, Mark. You've got a, a different Highland I, I, Park. If I'd known we were all doing, you guys were doing twelve. I would have gotten twelve. I got fussy and chose. This is sort of just a different release of theirs called Volknut. Okay. okay. Somebody corrected me in a previous episode when I said a name incorrectly that had like Viking origin. That's part of the story of the Orkney Island where uh, where this whiskey is from there's a lot of viking roots there yes yes there are well and it's you know the only other time just since you know to complete the circle that we've done the same whiskey uh or same brand was uh uh was david myers uh glens creek um so we we featured featured him pretty early on 
just different different varieties of that. But um, yeah, I've I've enjoyed this. I've had this bottle for a little while. Um, you know, good. I know we're not going to spend a lot of time on tasting notes, but you know, good honey, uh, honey flavor. Definitely, there's some peat. Uh, I think it's got a pretty long finish, but uh, I'm certainly, uh, you know, I. I had to make sure I didn't finish it before uh, before we had the episode, so, uh, so I'm glad I got the pour. Yeah, well, I, I cracked open a new bottle here, and um, yeah, it's it's um, it's definitely peaty. It's not Isla super heavy, aggressive peaty. It's uh, it's well. Balanced. Yeah, no, I think it's well balanced, um, but it, it's it's got a long a long finish. At least again, the one I have was kind of a a raisiny. Uh, raisiny finish, but but quite a long finish, which I I enjoy. I enjoy whiskey tasting different going in than going down the back, and uh, um, and and this definitely has you know enough complexity without getting uh, all, all muddled. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the, the thing that's a little different about this release is that it's also sherry cask finished, and I'm partial mm. to sherry finished Scotch and sherry finished bourbon. And Tom, what, what what do you think? Well, I think it tastes really great. It's it's kind of smooth, um, and uh, I have no vocabulary to <laughs> describe right. whiskey. I want to call it like buttery or you, you know fruity. Um, what all what, what, your, what you taste and what you smell is what you taste and what you smell. So. Yeah. And we don't, we don't, uh, get too, get too picky about that. Cause you know, first of all, my, my sinuses, uh, change my, my taste, taste quite a bit, but, but it is, it is, uh, fruitier than many, uh, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not a lot of earth. I mean, it's got the peat, but it's not a lot of earth, not a lot of leather. Some of those other tones you can sometimes get, it's definitely got, got a sweeter, sweeter hint to it. Um, for sure. I, it's very smooth too. It goes down very well. And um, again, I think I'm just using amateur words. Not that we need a kind of snooty vocabulary, but do you, uh, do you like it? <laughs> I love it. Right. Instead of trying to give it to a zero to a hundred point scale, just go thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's about, well, a, I, you know, it's like a 90 for me. Yeah. And I'd, I'd say for a 12 year old, yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and a 12 year old, it's, it, it's, it's definitely getting into the, the upper echelons of aging, but for scotch, it's not, you know, it's not overdone at all, but it's, it, it does not have a lot of the harshness that I might normally expect from a 12 year old. So I, I, I do think, uh, I think they've, I think they've done a good job with this and I think it's a pretty good price point for what you get. I forget what it is, but I know it's, it's pretty good for what you're getting. I think I paid 47 which um, not bad at all. No, not bad. Well, this bottle was fifty something. Okay. Yep. Again, it's uh, it's twelve year old Scotch, so it's not going to be thirty bucks, but uh, um, that's not a bad price at all. I'd say for what you for what you get. Yeah. So we'll en- enjoy it like we we got okay. poured almost out of the same bottle. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I thought we'd we'd open up. Uh, Know, there's plenty of heavy, heavy things that we can talk about and that, you know, if you turn on the TV, anybody else can talk about. So uh, start and finish with some a little bit of fun. Um, I think 2020 has been an opportunity for lots of new things for people. Um, 
So uh, I was talking talk about something new that you've been up to. So, uh, Mark, you might you might take the cake here, but uh, why don't you yeah. why don't you share what you've done? Well, so um, since my wife started a new job in California in Los Angeles in May, um, there's there's only so much that you can do and explore. And so we take advantage of outdoor things. And um, I went, we went parasailing. It was my first time. She had done it before, maybe in her, uh, maybe 20 years ago. And uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, you basically, you're on a boat and they've got a big old parachute and a couple of harnesses, kind of like you were zip lining, but they attach you to the parachute and woof, off you go. 800 foot long cords so to do the math with the diagonal uh, the FAA doesn't want you going up higher than 500 feet but um, it was it was amazing I thought it was going to be a lot windier and so like what being on a motorcycle or something would be like but it was actually very peaceful even though the boat's cruising along um, amazing views up and down the coast and can't wait to go and do it again actually very neat very cool yeah <laughs> What have you been up to, Tom? Um, I guess I'm going to start by just confessing that we are very um, uh, cautious, my wife and I, and we have two daughters, so I'm just not doing a whole hell of a lot. We um, are respecting the, um, the risks and dangers of the times we live in, and I just feel like I'm, I'm actually okay with that. You know, we doesn't needn't be a whole COVID thing, but I, I'm just not not eager to take any unnecessary risks. So it's really been shut in time. We have a you know amazing French bulldog Buster, and I have the privilege of seeing my younger daughter Haley, who's in town going to uh, mass art in the fashion program, and we've got it structured to see her. Mm-hmm. And you, I think, Mark, you know, I, I, I never go without mentioning my older daughter, Lucy, <laughs> who's finishing um, her third year at Yale Medical S- Nursing School okay. in the wow. nurse practitioner program. And I'm wow. nice. insanely proud of her. Yeah. I mean, it's, I just like it, it warms my heart. I, I did Zoom with her today. Yeah. Um, her. So my new experiences are pretty much the kind of boring um what i've read and what i've watched <laughs> um i i did finish robert caro's the power broker which um as the old joke goes i'm telling everybody <laughs> i mean i just freaking love that book yeah. it was amazing and it's a 1200 page book um and in terms of just other new stuff, I my mom gave me Criterion Channel for my birthday, and I've binged on a lot of um, pretentious, obscure foreign films. Uh, <laughs> this weekend, I, I watched the Olivier version of Richard III, which was nice. really good. Wow. And we, I also watched all six um, Lone Wolf and Cub movies it's a japanese series that was based on um, a manga and they were incredibly enjoyable so the the book um, paper or kindle oh my god paper i I would never (laughs) read that a book that long on kindle it's it is hard to read long i've done long on on kindle uh someone sure knows books uh 
um, you know, a thousand page books, uh, like Titan length of a book. Yeah. Yeah. Big fat, get, small writing. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, you know, Tom, I'm not too different. Uh, you know, we, we don't go out a whole lot. We have, you know, our kids are in and out, uh, uh, with school and, and, uh, soccer and some activities. And that's, that to me is enough. Right? Uh, you know, we have plenty of, uh, plenty of play there and there's not a whole lot I need in my life. Uh, in fact, I've been deep. I, I have a longer list of things I've stopped doing. Mm-hmm. Um, not because I can't because I've been like decluttering my life and, uh, just figuring out, you know, focusing on what, uh, stripping stuff away that isn't important. But, but as far as new things go, um, probably the most boring answer of, of the group is, uh, is yoga has been one of my new things. And, uh, yeah. I, I've never been a flexible person. Um, and I'm still not, but, uh, um, you know, I, I've done a lot of swimming this year, a lot of running. In fact, I did a six mile, uh, run along the Delaware river, river this morning, but I started doing some, some fairly serious yoga and wow, I'm just impressed about how, how, how hard that really is um, yeah. for people that, that, that do it seriously. It, 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 uh, boy, I feel that in places that I didn't know existed uh, the day after when I do it right. So, um, so that's one of my new things. And I think it's something that I'll, I'll, I'll look to keep, especially, I, I think, you know, something to incorporate as you get older is it's, it's a, a brilliant balance of, of strength and flexibility um, and low mm-hmm. impact. So. Do you do like an online class? Do you do it zoom wise or, I mean, how do you, so I, I, I started tinkering around with just YouTube stuff and, uh, um, then there's a, a an app, uh, I, an app that, uh, I can't remember the name of, um, but it, it compiled, you put a bunch of settings in place and it compiles a, uh, a workout for you. And so, uh, you can change the time to any duration you want just about and different styles and different focus areas. And so uh, I'll tell you the last one I did this week was on, on a, a 40 minutes on core strength and, um, well, really quite, quite difficult. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it just, it's, it's an app that, uh, with a subscription, it's not a free app, but, uh, it's, it's very well done. Um, and, uh, Again, highly customizable, so you can start to play around and experiment what what works for you instead of just being subject to your instructor. Um, and it costs a little bit less than Peloton. Oh man, <laughs> I, I, I I'd imagine everything does. So uh, I mean, what the hell is with that business model? It's it's I guess brilliant and timely, but. I don't have one. I read a review in the Wall Street Journal of the new bike. Mm-hmm. And, um, you, you know, you do the math and say between the financing the bike at 0% plus the app, it's about $100 a month. And some people do pay that for a monthly gym membership. And especially if two or more people in a household are sharing it. I mean, I guess it could, it's certainly, it's pricey, but people could justify it, I guess. And I think the the community aspect of it um, is right for some people. For me, um, community is great for things like lean, but community for personal health was never my thing. I kind of liked figuring out my own path. Um, right. And and uh, but for those that 
the community is a big part of it. I guess there's a lot of value there in that. So, um, but yeah, I, I, the first time I heard the price, I almost fell over. So, <laughs> but uh, I also want to just throw in there. Um, we talk about stripping out things that weren't important to you. I'm glad you're still doing the podcast here, Jamie, that warms, yes. that warms my heart or that could be <laughs> the whiskey, but either way. <laughs> well, it's, you know, little things like fantasy soccer leagues and, um, you know, things I, I would pay attention to on a regular basis, just, just no longer really mattered. And so, uh, yeah, just, uh, uh, narrowed my focus and, and, uh, figured out what, what does matter. And that's, I, you know, I think, I think we're seeing that in a lot for a lot of people of, um, either hankering to get back to what's important to them or finding what's important and what they have either way. It's all good. It's all good reflection. So, so, um, yeah, enough of new stuff. Let's get into people that have less exciting new stuff. Um, uh, from a, from an, in the news standpoint, um, I, Tom, you had sent, sent an article, which really teased this up about United Airlines and their their response, right? So so they have to do a whole bunch of new things. Um, and I think we'll talk about others that have to as well. But, um, you know, there, there's, there's several businesses that uh, have not survived. There's others that uh, are really just, they, they had a tough 2020, but things are returning to some version of normal. And there's a whole lot of industries that are uh, really not sure what they're headed back to. Um, it, it's unclear for what market that they're in, whether or not things return to normal, ever get back to how strong they were, never get back to how strong they were. And, and airlines, even though part of the recent uh, part of the news was that they're saying, well, we think it's going to take two years to get back. Um, but as somebody that was a massive, you know, I, 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 I actually deliberately never calculated how much I spent a year on, on Delta because I knew it was a huge number uh, between international trips and, and, and almost weekly trips. Uh, I knew it would almost concern me if I ever calculated the number, but, but I don't intend to ever go back to that. And um, I know a lot of companies are thinking about less and a lot of, uh, individuals are thinking about less travel as a permanent shift in their work. So the, this idea that uh, two years to get back to normal feels aggressive, but the sheer magnitude, you know, Delta, uh, Delta had the last quarter, 3 million in revenue, but a $5.4 billion loss. So 3 billion in revenue, $5.4 billion loss on the quarter, not the year. And, and the technical uh, term for that would be bad. That that would be fall um, in that or, category. Or they they sound like some hot venture funded startup that can afford that kind of burn rate. But yeah, if it was bad. all if it was all with the the promise of I don't know clicks or something, maybe it would it would work. But 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 there are businesses, and they're not the only ones that are 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 far from recovered, and and still don't know what their target is to recover to um that are that are that are hard to deal with um and they're they're trying to figure it out as fast as they can but i mean if i may i think what 
strikes me about an article like this, like it was a Times article that talks about how uh, United is trying to plan around a pandemic, is that the headline itself says it all. How do you plan around a pandemic? Right. And how can lean, which is what we all care about, um, be relevant? You know, there's, I think, useful applications of lean. And I think there's times where I, I, I don't know how being lean matters. I mean, you know, we believe in it. And I think that the core message of using lean principles to be prepared for hard times is absolutely relevant and resonant. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are in this kind of black swan, unique crisis where I think it's really vital to remain lean and to apply its principles in terms of um staffing and forecasting and above all acting in a you know quality driven way um but we're facing a a freaking tidal wave um and i don't know it just is there's times i feel like yeah we can preach the the lean gospel but and maybe it's necessary but not sufficient but that we're in a time where it's dramatically insufficient um yeah well i mean i think you know jamie and i have talked about this before um it's a question of what is meant by lean um a lot you know and we've talked about other media reports where they equate lean with um being risky because the supply chains were too spread out and slow and non-responsive and like well i don't think any of us would call that lean. I saw an article the other day that said, well, you know, and so, you know, just in time didn't work. So companies are going to go to uh, more of a just in case model with shorter supply chains. And I'm like, that, that sounds like lean. We don't have to call that just in case. That's what just in time is supposed to be, not the, 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 the literal slow boat from China. Well, and I, I think, you know, Tom, your point around being necessary but not sufficient is is a you know an important one because you know lean lean is is uh, you know meant to make you more agile to deal with you know adverse or positive surprises right either way you're 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 more flexible you're better able to adapt uh, more rapidly uh, but you know this being well off the the spectrum of of possible outcomes there's other things that have to happen, right? I mean, Delta, you know, I mean, Delta, uh, Delta uh, basically mortgaged their, uh, their frequent flyer program um, as a way to raise money to, you know, you're, it has nothing to do with lean. That's just creative financing. It reminds me of when Ford mm-hmm. uh, mortgaged the Blue Oval, which was, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. shocking, but it helped, you know, w- there's only one automaker in the U.S. that avoided a bailout. And Ford, Ford was the one. And that, you know, I don't know if that was made the difference, but some creative financing um, makes a difference. And so United and Delta and others in that in, in these industries are going to have to do that. But I think where where Lean can help now, right? Because I think there's a lot more to come in terms of figuring things out, is truly engaging their customers mm-hmm. to understand how they're thinking. Mm-hmm. Because the value proposition 
has changed for companies making this, you know, bulk decisions, right? right? Are we going to do is, you know, I, I've had three conversations this week about companies saying, well, we figured out we can just do less week in, week out business travel, and then maybe, you know, more less frequently come together and socialize uh, and, and do other work, but, and, and build the relationships. So engaging your, your corporate customers, your, uh, your individual high user customers, the, the, the less frequent customers, and engage them and understand how they're thinking as a way to forecast a future that has nothing to do with data, right? Nothing to do with trying to build a, a model based on past practice. And Tom, didn't the book Lean Solutions really focus on customer intimacy, as some might call it, right? Absolutely. I mean, it, it kind of, if the gospel of Lean Solutions, uh, thank you for mentioning it, were to, you know, be a call to action. And I, I think their, their core message is, is um, figuring out what do customers really value and then determining the most effective way to provide that. Um, then we would have this kind of radical and unthinkable notion that airlines would rethink what they actually provide. So it's mobility, um, but in an, an era where mobility is not feasible, what does that mean? And I, I just can't conceive of any airline, any people moving operation, thinking outside of the uh, box. Um, but it's really, when they say lean solution, it's like, you know, what's the, what's the value that you're delivering and being able to not be anchored by your current assets and investments, but rather being perennially perpetually driven by the value you are delivering for your customers mm-hmm. and finding ways to rethink it. Um, yeah. And, and that requires creativity, right? So I'm going to use an example. In California, um, statewide gyms are still locked down, closed. And that even applies to uh, a private gym in a condo building. And so uh, I'm not one of them, but I'm sure more people have taken up swimming because there's constantly somebody swimming laps in the pool down there. But then they, um, I'll give them credit, the, the, the HOA um, had the, found the funds and decided uh, there was room out on the pool deck that wasn't really used. And they put uh, two bikes out there that weren't Peloton expensive. They don't require electricity. And they put out some dumbbells and a couple of benches. And they even put like a cabana over it, which I didn't think was really necessary, but fine. It's open um, most of the time. So it's not like I look at it and say, that's not just a pandemic workaround of, okay, open air is good. Like that's going to be a nice permanent feature. Right. Even when things get back to normal, people are going to say like, oh, isn't it, isn't it a you know, selling feature of like, oh, and I'll keep using it. Isn't it amazing that, you know, they have an outdoor space being California and 72 degrees most of the time. And I, I think the trick is going to be, you know, doing those experiments, finding new ways to add value, but paying attention to the financial model behind it. Mm-hmm. And and what's temporary and what's permanent, right? So, 
so I was listening to a podcast and I, I don't remember what the podcast was. Um, I, I, I seem to remember it was an offshoot of the, of Reed Hoffman's uh, masters of scale uh, podcast. Um, but it was, it was an interview with uh, a CEO of one of not one of the biggest, but one of the uh, movie theater chains. Mm. And, and through the whole conversation, it was her describing the things that they're trying to do, rent out the whole theater or, have special programs and spend extra time cleaning and all these other, and they're, and they're kind of saying, well, we, we, the, the, the cleaning regiment probably is something we should have been doing all along. So we'll keep that. Um, but, but the interviewer kept asking, well, okay, that's, that sounds really interesting as a way to engage customers. Now, as you do that, is that to help off, offset the revenue loss mm. or is that an additional cash burn? that's just maintaining customer relations. And almost all of them were the latter, mm-hmm. right? They were they were being super creative about engaging customers and finding new ways mm-hmm. to add value, but they were burning more cash as a result mm-hmm. in the hopes that they don't have to do so for so long. Um, but but that's where that's where it gets interesting because you know even even returning back to the airlines, well, uh, you know, just like movie theaters, well, if a landlord forecloses on a movie theater, who on else are they going to rent that to um, except another movie theater? Just like an airline says, well, we we, we got to retire some aircraft and who on earth are we going to sell them to? Um, and so the asset heavy industries mm-hmm. that uh, in particular, you know, they got to figure out, they got to figure out the customer. That's where lean can help. Um, you know, on the asset side and the financial side, you know, they, they also have some, some, some core business rigor behind how some of that works. And it feels like even now, eight, six, eight months into this pandemic, lean offers iterative tweaks to existing models. I can't see how companies or industries are rethinking their models. I mean, uh, the airline industry is just so doomed. <laughs> it's so broken. Um, I can't believe that Lean offers something substantive for it. Yeah, I throw hotels into the mix. You know, how many hotels are going to end up just uh, shuttered? Uh, for, for who knows how long. And then to Jamie's point, so something can be done with the building or more likely something's done with the land. Um, so yeah, there's, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I think lean solutions and, and other, other books that get based more off of, you know, Toyota product development system. I mean, I think there is some gray area where, um, lean startup or other methodologies you could argue or for creating something new or reinventing something. But it's not the core of TPS. Well, Mark, but I think, um, go ahead. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of it depends on well-crafted problem statements, right? And and which is fundamental to lean thinking. Mm-hmm. And oh, I, I make it very clear when, when I'm coaching people on problem solving that that if you define a problem statement as a gap that's you know a five percent gain. That's a very different thought exercise than if you say you need a 150% gain. Right. right? And, and so right now, the, the definition of the problem, of the gaps that people have to close, if they are well-defined, 
can lead to that creativity, right? They still need the creativity, the intuition, the experimentation, but it isn't incremental because the problem statement is this gap. And, and, and I think, you know, even, even for myself, let's use my own example of this because it's easy to talk about. Um, you know, I, I've technically worked from home for 20 years. Just, it's just been one or two days a month. I just, it's not that frequent. Um, but I kind of treated the problem statement of once I started working from home permanently of imagine this is all I ever do, right? Now, make it productive and make it comfortable. And, and so I was far more aggressive than most people I talk with who are only just now, right? I've had, again, a couple conversations this week, this week with people saying, well, my work from home, I've already been working home from six, working from home for six months, but it was just extended until January or March. And now, now I'm maybe serious about, you know, getting something that doesn't hurt my back. And so, you know, I, I said, here's the gap. The gap is imagine I have to work from home permanently now fix it. Right. And it led me to bolder action, more aggressive action to close my gaps because of how I framed my problem statement. And I think, you know, I, I, to me, an airline saying this will return in two years is a poor problem statement. Now maybe they have to, to not completely scrap their stock, but but boy, I'd be looking at the problem statement and saying, imagine business travel never returns to pre-pandemic levels. Now solve that. Right. And, and, you know, again, not easy, but if you properly define the problem, more, more, more creative solutions can start to come into the mix. And maybe yeah. a more <coughs> pragmatic problem statement would be um, maintain comparable um you know profits with 30 percent less traffic 50 percent mm-hmm. less traffic right um because yeah and i don't know if you want to go here mark you know there's this topic of I, i'm not sure you're familiar with it but lean hospitals <laughs> <laughs> what about it no, uh, <laughs> I mean, well, it's a tough time you know, for hospitals right now. And that's really, it's not a laughing matter, but. And I don't, I really don't want to venture too much into lean misconceptions. Okay. Other than to say there remain some very powerful lean misconceptions in the way people assess, you know, what just in time is and, you know, what its risks are and so forth. Yeah. Um, there was a piece, I forget if it was the journal or the times, I think the journal that implicitly critiqued, um, previous drives for efficiency with hospitals. Yeah. And it, it attributed that with their lack of preparation for the surge in demand, um, driven by COVID. And again, I don't think any of us would fault, a, you know, useful just in time um, as the culprit. And that I think the key is that there's a difference between um, buffer capacity and, and what's needed to have um, to deal with regular demand. And even if it's uneven. Yeah. Well, so in that, in that article, I remember that article, it talked about 
you know, there are industry-wide trends of staffing shortages. Now, you could say part of that is caused by hospitals not treating employees very well. And then I hope your daughter um, doesn't end up down the same path of people get frustrated and burned out. And they say, to hell with this. And they leave and go do something else or they're not willing to pay enough. But, um, you know, that article was talking about, you know, um, staffing levels and capacity being cut so tight. And I'm like, that's just traditional cost cutting. That has nothing to do with lean. Healthcare has been doing that for ages. Oh, we have some excess capacity. Can't afford that. And they, you know, and they fire people. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame lean. There are other things that need to be rethought or reconsidered perhaps within, within. And if I may, it didn't even say that they were cut to levels that were unhealthy or that rendered these facilities to be unresponsive. I'm saying that, but I guess, (laughs) or that, or, you know, cut to the bone in terms of, you know, I mean, yeah, this is my pet soapbox issue that, um, typical hospital, if they if they're going to say and really mean that patient safety is their top priority, then their hospital is absolutely understaffed for what's needed to deliver that promise. Now, am I saying throw people at it well, forever? Sam, what no, but what? I'm I I can you say more? Can you provide examples? How do you how do you know that? Like what do you see in that in that regard? Well, I mean, for one, the results around patient safety and quality are poor, right? So there is a gap and there is a problem statement. A temporary solution in any industry can be to throw people at the problem until you can improve the processes and eliminate the waste to deliver safe, effective, and efficient care. But I think hospitals often get into a cost-driven, benchmarking-driven efficiency focus. And that, frankly, is a race to the bottom. If, let's say, there were just three of us. Uh, Jamie Hospital, Mark Hospital, and Tom Hospital. And Tom is being cheap. And so he skimps on staff and results are poor. But now Jamie and I benchmark and say, oh, well, we're not, we're not as productive as Tom. So, hey, we better, we better lay off staff. And maybe we get a little more aggressive. And then Tom looks and says, oh, my God, Jamie and Mark have what looks like better productivity. And, and, and that, that's, a ra- that's a race to the bottom. Well, and, and- Coming, you know, returning to my my theme of lean problem solving is, um, you know, I, I think one one thing that's important to consider as we, you know, sort of try to emerge from the pandemic with good lessons learned and better systems is who owns what problem, right? And so whether it's healthcare or it's aviation or these these important parts of our ecosystem, our economy, and our our, our way of life. Is, is it a hospital-owned problem statement to not have enough pandemic-level resources, or it is a state or a federal problem statement to, to then solve? And the, 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 the hospital, and I'm not advocating, I'm just kind of uh, uh, illustrating that who owns the problem statement is really important, right? So does a hospital own proper staffing for you know certain levels of, of conditions, but these conditions, these extremes, that's owned by, say, the state or, uh, you know, the National Guard or something. Um, but who owns the problem statement, I think, is important. And, and those articles that are, are poking at hospitals for all the, all the potential flaws that we can, we can find um, and, and all the, the, the glory that they've uh, delivered in, in respectable, honorable service, 
Um, you know, we we never see articles about who should own that problem statement besides the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that's the right place to, to own that particular problem statement at this level, right? I also don't want to sound like some strident Canterbridgean, but the fact is that hospitals that are motivated to maximize profit uh, eventually make decisions along those lines. And streamlining staff is absolutely part of it. And um, also choosing what procedures to specialize in um, absolutely affects that, whether you're going to kind of try to schedule more knee, knee replacements and so forth. Um, please, Mark, go ahead. <laughs> well, and at the risk of, I would go grab my cowboy hat, at the risk of sounding like the Texan who worships at the altar of the free market, um, you know, I have an MBA hanging on the wall behind me, but um, I'd, I'd, I'd have to go and I'd have to go and look and see if hospitals in England that are um, state owned and state run have been any more responsive to their surges in COVID. And I, I can say, you know, from experience having worked in other countries, there is often the, t- the the tyranny of profit gets replaced with the tyranny of the government budget, and that can be harmful and dysfunctional um, in different ways as well. I mean, so that's... I'm not disagreeing with you. I think I raised my point in the context of who owns the problem. Um, Whose problem is it? I think it lean encourages us to take a systems approach. And I think these are powerful dynamics that shape the um, decisions about allocating resources and where you invest and where you prepare. Right. And, yeah, and, and I was just going to interject one little bit of trivia for those, you know, for anyone who would say, you know, I'm speaking somewhat facetiously a couple of minutes ago, but, you know, healthcare already, you know, for people who would say, oh, we have a private healthcare system, at least 51% of healthcare is already paid for by the government in the U.S. It's privately owned in most cases. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a very, it is a complicated, regulated, government-involved, quote-unquote, market. It's its 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 own weird, unique animal. It is. And and, and again, what's the, the problem statement? Like, I always use the example of the pizza shop, and solving Friday night is a different problem statement than solving Super Bowl Sunday, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and those are two completely different problem statements. And most of our emergency response as a country is built on the idea that most disasters are localized. And so you can move resources from Texas to California or California to Maine, or uh, nobody ever comes to Pennsylvania because things are pretty boring here. But um, but you can move things around. In fact, some people have argued that this is why the euro won't last, because the big difference is that we will move resources around our country to to solve problems where, um, you know, where certainly the the euro collapse, uh, the beginning of that started to prove the fragility. But but this, of course, was one where that, that wasn't localized. And so, again, different problem statement. It's more like Super Bowl Sunday type of problem statement than a typical Friday night disaster type of problem statement. And so, um, you know, good good problem statements. Uh, everything from how we define the gap to who owns it to uh, the duration of that problem statement and and uh, uh, what's on the table and what's not on the table. Whether United Airlines, your hospital, or the federal government, 
yeah. it, it's a, it is a core skill from lean that I think can help people again, not, not sufficient, but can help people navigate these waters. Can I say one other thing about healthcare that that's been happening here in the last few months? So there are many of these problem statements. We could talk about the patient safety gap or going back to, you know, questions of lean solutions. What does the customer, meaning the patient, need and what are they trying to accomplish? So let's look at telemedicine. The technology has been there forever, but the broader part of that system has been the reimbursement structure. So as with many problems, it's interesting to ask, cannot solve or not willing to solve right now? And the telemedicine thing, you know, because the reimbursement wasn't there, why would you, um, you know, hurt your bottom line by, you know, you're going to drive people, you've got to come and see us, you've got to come into the office, you've got to come and see us. And I can't tell you how many hospitals I've talked to directly, and I've seen similar quotes in the news, that in the pandemic, for one, there was um, special, there were changes made to Medicare, Medicaid reimbursement, and I think private insurers followed. And the, the general quote has been, oh, we made five years worth of progress on telemedicine in two weeks because some of those systemic factors were aligned and the sense of urgency was finally there, which I think says something. So, it, you know, that, 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 that need for, um, you know, that, that sense of urgency is maybe an external factor to whatever lean methods that are used to help people design these new processes and rapidly iterate as they roll them out. And, and in a similar vein, again, the sense of urgency starts to help, starts to force us to solve problems that we could have solved before. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I was, I was, well, I was in a, a conference earlier this week, uh, the, the kickoff summit for the National Association of Corporate Directors. And they had, they had some great speakers, uh, uh, Susan Rice and Colin Powell and, and others, but they, they did an interview with Sanjay Gupta. Um, talking about the pandemic and how to think about it as a board member. Um, but, but one of the things that he came out with, with extreme optimism was that a belief that some of the systems that enable innovation in medicine have been permanently changed. Mm -hmm. This isn't just about rushing a, rushing a vaccine through the system, that we've, we've, we've actually removed real barriers in the process, not just, not just tried to rush it through, but removed real barriers mm -hmm. to the speed of innovation in, in, in at least medicine that he believes will largely be permanent. And that, that will reduce costs that will, you know, improve the, improve the speed that will increase companies willingness to, to invest. Can um, you give an example, not to put you on the spot, but that's really intriguing to me. Yeah. He didn't go into a lot of details around that. Just that, that, it, it wasn't, I think he was trying to make, make it clear that A, th this isn't a vaccine that we're just, you know, ignoring protocols and, and that it's real and that we should trust it when it, when it, when it does get done, that it won't be, you know, it, it won't be a farce. Yeah. Um, but that to do so, so quickly and so dramatically quickly, that's never been done before, it took removing you know, removing barriers to the progress. And that's, that's really all he elaborated. But, yeah. but the point was, you know, we, we know, I mean, people can submit paperwork and wait 18 months, right. Uh, to hear back. And, and there's people's entire jobs based on trying to bird dog paperwork. Um, 
and, and we know that's not adding value to the process. And so it's things like that, that he, you know, his interpretation is that these could lead to these appear like perhaps permanent changes to making, uh, to making it more efficient and faster, um, for medical innovation. Yeah. I mean, there's a great lean point there. You know, the, 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 the broad general question of, uh, false efficiency of cutting corners versus removing the waste and delay to improve right. flow. And that's where I think exactly. a lot of times, you know, people are using the word, um, efficiency and articles. And I, it's really, it's, it's about flow and it's, it's about problem solving. I, I talked last week uh, with Lisa Nichols, who's retired from Toyota, uh, Kentucky. And, you know, she said something to the effect of like, well, it's really, you know, TPS, it's really just, it's all about problem solving. Look at Art Smalley's book, The Four Types of Problems. And it's really, it's a, everything is framed as one form of problem or another. And then you orient yourself around the experiments and the steps. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but she did say very, very directly that really the, the key thing, is just all about problem solving. <laughs> yes. I I think that it's useful during times like this to try to understand what lean can do and what it can't do. That there's just some waves that we can, you know, ride or learn to ride and some that are just going to swamp us. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the types of problems facing the airlines, for example, I got no idea how they're going to ride them out. And I'm hopeful that they'll not lose, you know, not waste this opportunity that this problem presents to get better. But the numbers are just so freaking daunting. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess my question would be for you guys, what do you think are productive ways that lean can be and lean thinking can be tapped at a time like this? proportionate, productive um, ways that we can apply what we've learned from lean to some of these problems, both large and small? Well, I, th I think besides problem solving, which we've talked about quite a bit, and, and you could call this just a subset of problem solving, but I, I think experimentation, you know, w w you're in a point of inflection, you know, and, and, it's important not to treat everybody with a broad brush because, you know, what hospitals are going through is completely different than airlines, completely different than, than, uh, uh, movie theaters, completely different from, you know, my work. Um, but so, so I think it's important everybody solves this in their own right. But, you know, we've, we've basically unglued everything, right? So okay. everything that was glued down is now unglued, which is great time to start experimenting. Right. And, and even just the work from home forced experiment that uh, nobody was willing to do. I don't say nobody's willing to do that. Most companies that face it, if you asked an executive, they would say, yeah, I don't think that will work. Mm. Right? Right. I'm not willing to try it to see if it will, but I don't think it will work. So we're not mm -hmm. going to do the experiment. Now the experiment was forced on them. And in some cases, they found that it wasn't. I, I, I get frustrated with how many news articles use. The, the first deep study that was done since the pandemic started was one uh, in China, which isn't inherently bad, 
but it was of a call center, uh, which is work that people don't do with each other, right? They just <laughs> they answer the phone and talk to a customer. And, and it's, it's not a good, it's a good study for what they do. It's not a good study for understanding work from home, but I, numerous companies that I've talked with have measured, have evaluated, and there's things they learned that haven't worked. There's things they learned that have worked. And the best ones are starting to do more experiments right. with, with how they do the work. Right. And, and, um, Mm-hmm. So I think that's the key is that everything's unsettled. Everything's unglued experimentation, whether it's cultural friction, physical friction, or just your work has no longer working. <laughs> Whatever became unglued is unglued. It's a great time to start to experiment, right? Just like if you, you know, take all the furniture out of your house because you've got a fumigated or something. I don't know. I'm making that up, but great time to figure out, well, while everything's up, let's figure out if everything should go back in the same place. Much more willing to do it then than you are while it's already in place. Yeah, uh, I'll I'll just. I mean, I think Jamie said it really well. I, I won't spend any more time on it, but I was I was basically just going to say experiments, um, form of problem solving that is you know call it a plan do check act or plan do study adjust or whatever you call it. You know, small tests of change that allow you to move past what I know versus what we figure out together. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm hearing from both of you is that in that sense, lean represents a mindset of openness to experimentation and willingness to, I guess, blow shit up. Mm -hmm. And a willingness to get past ourselves of what we know won't work and what we know is going to work. Either of those can hold us back, either of those mindsets. Because when we say, I know that won't work, well, then you've got no hope of progress. And then when we say, well, I know that's going to work, we get stubborn organizationally and we're hell bent on, I, I gosh, you know, a lean internal facilitator or something who comes to me with a problem that's being framed to them as prove that this new initiative works. I'm like, oh, that's no, oh gosh, I feel bad for you. That's not good science. That's not what lean or engineering should be about. Yeah. And and I'd probably add, although this is less about methodology, but, um, you know, the the, the lean tenant of of respect for people, Mm -hmm. um, which, which, you know, often is misguided as just being nice or something like that, I, I, I think. You know, we could use its own its own book. Maybe that's your next one, Tom. Um, but uh, you know, right now people need that more than ever. Um, you know, there's there's a hundred things that they used to control that they can't. You know, is my kid going to school? Well, we took that for granted. Now it's like well, I don't know. This week maybe. Next week no. The week <laughs> after we'll see. Like the the things that people have to go through is is not unprecedented, but is way abnormal. The stress levels are are very different from one individual to the next. Um, you know, you take a, 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 a couple that's both working with a one-year-old and a three-year-old. Well, that's a very different situation than one person working with a, a house where they can spread out and kids that are in high school. Um, it, just everybody has their own situation. 
and and that empathy, not just empathy, but active empathy, uh, making things work for people's conditions. Um, and, and so, and then giving them things to trust in because a lot of things they used to trust in are no longer trustable. And mm-hmm. so now what can they trust in? Give them a couple things to hang on. And, and, and so that whole respect for people, giving people things that they, you know, you, you can't tell them when they're coming back to work. You can't tell them uh, the financial future. You can't tell them a bunch of things, but what can you do? Give them control over the things that you can give them control on. And, and I think that, you know, that's not exclusive to lean, but it is a fundamental tenet of lean. And I think something we need to be practicing very actively. Again, not just not just inside, oh, I respect to be people, but active pursuit of demonstration of that respect is what's needed. I'm going to agree with you. And at the same time, to kind of give away some of the secrets, I think there's a, a way that this is a kind of a, a, a really enduring challenge for lean, that that sounds great, but we need examples. We need tangible proof that that's the way to do it. And it's it's been hard to um, kind of engineer and discover and share those stories. And um, kind of uh, the proof that this is the way to do it. I agree with you. And I think there are places where that's happening and has happened. Um, but it's it's a big gap. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, you know, and of course, it's really hard to do controlled experiments around. Right. So it's like, sure. OK, you manager a you demonstrate respect for people manager b you you don't right it's like okay right. let's see who performs better it's 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 really difficult i think the dem i you know i think the demonstration will be as the economy returns um uh and people have choices where do they want to work okay i love and, your optimism in both of those i'll just say that briefly <laughs> fair um and uh, not generally known as, as an, an, an inherent optimist, but but yeah, I think you know as there's opportunities for for employment levels to return and people have choices, where do they want to work, and and what companies are have you know having no problem hanging on to their people because of how they treated them during this time, and uh, I think you'll see it in in yeah. uh, maybe not easily measurable ways. But I think you'll see, you'll see a few stories pop where uh, the loyalty uh, the, the loyalty to a company or to a leader uh, either way is fine. I don't uh, I don't really believe in companies anyway. It's like <laughs> loyalty really when you know when you have loyalty to a company, you really have a loyalty to a whole bunch of other people. Maybe not one, right? Yep. But it's still loyalty usually to the people, not not to a brand or a building. So. Uh, but that loyalty, I think uh, you'll see you'll see some differences in the next couple of years. Hmm. I'm going to give a shout out again. I think we've mentioned before, but the handful of hospitals like UMass Memorial Medical Center and Baptist out of uh, Memphis, Tennessee, who have committed to their people when you talk about engendering loyalty. And I'll give Lisa Nichols credit. She is a consultant and a coach um, to UMass and 
the leaders there. It's straight out of the Toyota playbook. You're in tough times. Don't try to balance the books in the short term by furloughing and laying off staff. Engage them in improvement. Cross-train them. Get them making PPE. And, and, and the loyalty and everything that comes with that helps make up for the quote-unquote staff shortages problem. Can, can you say more with more detail about what you've observed or have heard from Lisa about how this is playing out at these places? I, I, I've, I've interviewed, um, I, I can't say, I, I didn't talk about it at depth with Lisa. I know she's worked with them. I, I did do a podcast um, in the Habitual Excellence podcast series that I do for Value Capture, where their CEO, Dr. Eric Dixon, talks about this in great length of how this was not an easy thing to sell the board on because the default, if you see the headlines in healthcare was furloughs and layoffs and, and you see in, in, in leaders and spokespeople will say, well, we had to do this. We were forced to do this. We had no choice. I'm like, no, it was a choice. Some other hospitals have made a different choice. And so anyway, I, I, it's a pet peeve of mine when leaders play the victim instead of saying, look, this was a tough decision and we made it. We didn't know what else to do. And I think it's interesting that there are examples out there of organizations um, that have figured out other things to do. Mark, I'm shocked you have pet peeves. (laughs) (laughs) You can't say that with a straight face after a full glass. It comes out after, uh, no, it doesn't even take the whiskey, but yeah. It does not take the whiskey. So So we can call this this podcast, Tom, you you know, um, yeah, we do a podcast called Hot Buttons where you do nothing but hit my hot buttons for 30 (laughs) minutes. And that might not be fun to listen to. No, it'd be really fun, but we we don't. <laughs> yeah, we won't we won't invent that podcast here. Um, I know that <laughs> won't work. Nope. See, I fell into that trap. <laughs> we'll, we'll take our listener data and see how it goes. But I I think it works the other way too. Um, in that, you know, employees are evaluating their boss, their company decisions, things like that. But it, this is also proven to be an opportunity for, for bosses to evaluate their employees, their team. And I know more than a few cases I've, I've seen where uh, people learn things that, you know, they were suspicious of but really couldn't test. People did an adequate job, right? And, 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 and this isn't about blaming the employee, but they, they kind of learned that as, as, soon as, as soon as everything hit the fan, that there's employees who stepped up and did great things, who engaged, who participated, and those who didn't. And, and of course, be very clear, we have to understand the differences because some of them are based on, you know, very personal things like, you know, family members who died or family members who are at risk or yeah. they're at risk and all sorts of other things. But um, there has been... It, it, it has been a test. It has uh, separated some people in organizations of those who really will have stepped up with conviction and commitment and capability and, and those who have uh, withered, uh, for lack of a, a better, better word. And, um, and, and again, when, when, when a manager has no choice but to make decisions, right, they don't it's not about the financials. They're, they're no longer in charge of the financials, right? They, they don't have that ability to just make a, 
a personal choice of of respect. They they have to make choices about their employees. Well, that has consequences, right? And we're starting to see, at least I'm starting to see cases where uh, managers, bosses, leaders are learning a lot about their team. And some of it has very significant consequences, some of it uh, more mild, but either way, what they learned uh, has uh, has value to that leader. Well, it, okay, if, so if I may, in, in response to this, I think what the pandemic has um, reinforced to me is just the really powerful underlying challenges of lean. I think that we three probably share a common belief in its power and efficacy as a humanistic system of improvement, a systemic approach to make things better for the people doing it and the people receiving it. Um, and yet the pandemic has presented problems that transcend the, um, the scope of what lean can do. I think on the one hand, I think there's just things it can't address because these are just unique uh, tsunami one-offs. Um, and it, I mean, it's just humbling, you know, and, and it, it kind of, um, it means the, the, the obstacles we, we always face in trying to explain what the hell this weird exotic system is um, are that much harder because as we see in these really annoying pet peeves, Mark, these annoying articles that repeat every couple of freaking months about why lean is a problem, which we believe are wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it, um, I, I, I don't know where I'm going with this. So bear with me. Could be the whiskey talking. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think, I think, Tom, I, I think a, a fair conclusion that I, I, I'm pretty sure we all would have agreed of, with before is that lean is not a silver bullet. Right. Right. It, it doesn't solve all things. It right. doesn't cure all ills. It is a set of capabilities. It's a set of behaviors. It, it's, it's an enabling operating system. Thank you. It's an yep. enabling operating system. And I wrote a, a column for Industry Week years ago, something I believe in, but is actually somewhat heretical to, to lean thinkers, is that process enables talent, meaning that, you know, or said another way, lean enables talent. Mm -hmm. It doesn't replace it. It builds it. It helps strengthen it. It gets the most out of the talent you have. But talent is still talent. Creativity mm -hmm. is still creativity. Genius is still genius. Sure. And, and, and so... Uh, you know, while Link, I think, can make any organization better, um, there's still other ingredients that make it good or great or other other things. And 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 so we we shouldn't look at I think looking at lean as a silver bullet is lazy. And yeah, and I think some of the companies out there that adopt it uh approach it as such and and say okay well now lean is lean should we got to going to do this in a lean way therefore it's going to work like no it's it leans an ingredient lean will help reduce your variation of how you approach it and right. and enable collaboration and creativity 
does not replace it. And, and so this over-reliance on lean is, a, I think, a lazy management approach. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are all sorts of decisions, that strategic decisions that Toyota has to make. Um, hybrid vehicles, hydrogen vehicles, full-blown electric. How do they compete with Tesla and others? Um, it, how do they frame their business? Is it cars or is it they talk about mobility? Um, there are all sorts of things that we need to figure out. Um, you know, uh, building the Model T more efficiently and with fewer defects wouldn't win in the auto industry today. Yeah. Building the 2005 Corolla more efficiently with better with fewer defects wouldn't win in the auto industry today. Like, can I plug my iPhone into this car? No, but it's never going to break down. Well, I'll go buy something else. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think we 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 see that uh, uh, in, in many cases, right? So so that you know, lean. Lean is at best a vehicle to get you from point A to point B, but for starters, it doesn't tell you what point B is. Yeah. Um, you need some vision to see that. You need to be able to see over a horizon to a point. You know, I, I, lean, lean in its most pure, uh, unmanipulated form helps you better on a pathway where you can see where you're headed. But if you go past the horizon to a point that you can't see, well, that, that requires vision uh, and, and uh, creativity that lean can't give you. It might help enable because you've studied cause and effect, and that study of cause and effect has helped you figure out what the triggers are to create that vision, but lean doesn't give you that vision, I believe. And, and so you still need some of those, those capabilities um, to, to, to drive you into the future. And I think, I guess, personally, better understanding what lean can't do as a result of thinking about its application in these recent months, um, does improve incrementally my sense of what it can do and, and kind of has fostered a personal um, sense for me of, of looking at it proportionally you know, understanding mm -hmm. what it is. Um, mm -hmm. It is kind of humbling. Like I, I, I never thought lean was the great solution. I, I did gravitate towards it, but um, yeah. yeah, sorry. I well, mean, these so, are crazy times. These are crazy, crazy. Well, and I like to say that, that people solve problems, right? A3s don't solve problems. People solve problems, right? You, you can't, there's, you, you can't give an A3 template to, the wrong person, and they're going to go solve the next important problem. It still requires people, and all the all the beauty and 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 horror that comes with that. People solve problems, and and uh, lean lean is nothing. It's an enabler. It helps, but it's like saying you know my running shoes ran ran six miles this morning. No, they didn't. They they made it possible my knees wouldn't survive without some decent shoes, but I still actually had to do it. <laughs> um, and, and, and so I, I think we do ask too much of lean as this set of 
you know, agnostic things that, that we can touch and feel and look at and write about. Um, but still it comes down to people in the end. So, so it's two quick examples that come to mind. I know, and I've worked with some people who came out of Kodak who did some amazing lean work at Kodak because they were trained by some Toyota people. Wasn't going to do a damn thing really in the big picture for Kodak. But, um, and this isn't just a lean problem. Look at Motorola and Six Sigma. Where is Motorola? Is Motorola even, I mean, they're sort of, I mean, how much they've fallen in the last 20 years. And I'm not saying it's because of Six Sigma, but we could extend the argument to say Six Sigma was a not enough to help Motorola. And, and I was having uh, flashbacks here. I've got an order currently in for the um, iPhone 12 Pro. I never used to be that guy that always pre-ordered and updated, but I did that this time. My memory was correct. I Googled it. Motorola had a phone called the Rocker that was released in 2005. It was known as the iTunes phone. And I think it was, you know, a collaboration with Apple. It was, it says here, it was the first phone to be integrated with Apple's iTunes music service. And then Motorola got completely killed in the smartphone market because they didn't Mm -hmm. adapt. Is that Six Sigma's fault? No, absolutely. Did Lean kill Kodak? No, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. There are bigger and didn't didn't save it either. Right? Didn't save it either. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mark, um, go ahead. Sorry, Tom. No, I mean, I, I was just gonna like comment. I think the Lean can be very exciting. It gives you these tools that, if you apply them properly. Um, boost your performance. Um, but I just think there's a, you know, a, a, an understanding gap that can be very frustrating for some of us who've, I mean, I've studied it for 15 years now. And I think my understanding is pretty limited, frankly. And I'm not being falsely modest. Um, so I, I I don't know my point. It's that it's it, it 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 is a discipline that you need to kind of learn, apply, and and try to master. And um, there's something about it that is tied into its strength that is also absolutely part of the reason it's hard to disseminate and apply and sustain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're, I think, part of the same thing. And I also think that at times like this, where the problems are more dire and pronounced and explicit than ever, that we try to apply it in ways that are misunderstood and often um, not pragmatic or realistic. Which is not saying we should set it aside, but... Right. It's what I think we all see in, in the news. This all goes back to the original request, Mark and Jamie. You guys said pick an article to talk about. And God knows I couldn't. You know, I mean, how, how do you pick an article? What's current today? Aside from the fact that the news is contaminated by coverage of politics, which is not actually news. And there's just no salient, relevant articles about lean 
um, in terms of what's happening today in terms of meaningful problems and um, pragmatic countermeasures. I, I think that's a fair point. And, and uh, while, while we do this podcast for fun, mm-hmm. um, you know, possibly we can, we can shed a little, shed a little light where it belongs um, on, on these, on these questions uh, through this dialogue. Um, yeah. And uh, who knows, maybe you'll write the next, uh, uh, the next insightful article that helps, <laughs> helps bring light to where it's needed. But, but this is this is the challenge, and um, you know we've. I don't. I don't think lean is threatened, um, but I think the same thing happens now that happened in two thousand nine, which is companies and leaders who were serious about it, making it how they thought, how they worked, how they led, will double down. Yeah, and those who didn't, those who weren't. We'll give it up. And I think that's great, right? I think that's great is the people that were doing it for show, people that were doing it because they thought they should, people who were doing it because it was easy to say yes, will stop. And they will stop doing it badly. And the people that were serious about it will say, how do we really use this to help drive us forward? And that will lead to more good examples that we can follow. Yeah. Um, that's my hope. Yeah. Hmm. Other thing I'll add, I say it a bunch. People ask, is lean a fad? I say, yeah, only for organizations that are susceptible to fads. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so please. Yeah. So Mark, I think, uh, you know, I'm just looking at the time here. This this episode might be the, the truest example of, of what we do on Lean Whiskey or what we want with Lean Whiskey to be, which is we don't look at the time. We just have an unstructured conversation that takes us wherever we take, where, wherever it takes us. Um, and, uh, you know, we may not have a conclusion at the end of a, a bottle or a glass, right? But uh, uh, it, it might be time for us to, to move on and actually wrap up. We, we always have enough structure to get it going. It doesn't mean we follow the structure. Absolutely. So. No. And, and, and honestly, I've enjoyed the conversation, which is the whole point of this um, where we don't really, yeah, we love it when people listen. We love it when people comment. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Thank you all. But, um, but we would do this with one listener or perhaps zero because we'd want to do it anyway. And uh have the conversation and have the dialogue and ask good questions. And Tom was the, Tom was a perfect uh, fit into that, uh, that rhythm of let's, let's, let's ask big questions and have big thoughts. Thank you guys for having me and cheers. Thank you for motivating me to buy Highland park whiskey. Wow. (laughs) Well, enjoy, enjoy the rest of it. Just not tonight. (laughs) (laughs) No promises. You can have you can you can have more tonight. I just the whole bottle might be a bit much. So yeah, yeah, well. yeah I'm still fine. Remember, you you cracked it open on camera, so there we go. Now now we're is Highland Park uh, sponsoring us? 
Uh, no. no, we're sponsoring them by buying bottles full full retail price. No, I, want, I want to thank our sponsor, the Motorola Rocker Phone. <laughs> yes, you can pick yours up on eBay. Buy it now at Circuit City or Radio Shack. <laughs> or Sears. Are they still? Or Sears, yeah. Sears, thank you. In the Kmart section. Oh, boy. All right. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, good, good conversation, good whiskey, good times. Um, we will do, uh, you know, we kind of try to kick things off with something that's just kind of light and conversational. Um, we're going to close out. So, um, question here is, what's your favorite thing about fall, Jamie? Yeah. So, uh, you know, fall is my favorite season. I, I, I partly wear this shirt on purpose and partly because it is a fall day here and and I get to wear things like flannel and sweaters. <laughs> um, it, this morning when I was out early, it was 32 degrees, which didn't quite feel like fall, felt a little more like winter, but, but, you know, but it was crisp, right? It was crisp and foggy and, you know, to me, beautiful. And so that, 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 that whole, everything that comes with that, the sweaters, the flannel, the, the crisp mornings um, to me is all the, all part of the package of fall. Um, by the way, if anybody answers pumpkin spice lattes, you're not allowed back on the podcast, but, um, but, uh, but that's all part of fall. And, and it, it's also for me, even though I like fall season, the best, it, it's a gateway into Christmas for me, which is, which is just a lot of fun, the music and the lights and everything else. So um yeah, it's, it's filled with anticipation uh, in a lot of ways in that from from that spirit. So that's uh, that's part of what I love about about fall. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'll just add. I won't have as much to add. We'll let Tom uh, finish off the fall talk. You know, living in in or being in Texas right now it was eighty five degrees today. It really doesn't <laughs> feel like fall. fall. And LA is going to continue to be somewhere between sixty eight and seventy two degrees. Um, growing up in Michigan, you know, and having the four seasons, I honestly, I don't miss it a whole lot. Um, that's just me personally. Um, not a big fan of pumpkin spice latte, certainly not going to buy some sort of pumpkin spice flavored whiskey. No, thank you. Um, so fall, I mean, a lot of times I would say, I think of, uh, football and there are mixed feelings about that this year, uh, especially as Big Ten and my Northwestern Wildcats start um, next Saturday. Um, I, I will watch, but I, I have mixed feelings about the whole thing. And I hope mm-hmm. everyone uh, is okay, health-wise. So, Tom, help us end on a little brighter note than that. <laughs> There's two things I love and will always love about fall. Um, the light in the air. I grew up in New England, grew up in Lincoln, Mass. I live in Cambridge. And it is a spectacular time to be alive in New England in the fall. The air is just gorgeous. And it is a unique pleasure of being here at this time. And it it comes every year. And uh, it it just makes me happy to be alive. That's it's well said. It's it's hard to describe to somebody that doesn't experience that how the air is different, right? But it's, it is. It's palpable. You can't hold it. You can't touch it. But it is. It is just this quality that's everywhere, and it's profoundly delightful. Yep, I'm with you. 
I love it. Uh, and Pennsylvania is about as far south as I want to be. I mean, that's where I live now. And, and we're, we're about, I, I, I kind of feel like this year won't be peak colors, but uh, just the way that the weather's taking place. But we had a, a frost this morning, and I, I think we're about a week away from peak color. And, uh, and, and the air is already here. Um, and, and, yeah, it's a hard thing to describe fall air. But it's, it's not it's, even about the peak. It's just the moment, you know, you go outside and you're in the moment in this just gorgeous uh, um, environment. It's, yep. it's really wonderful. You nailed it. Please enjoy. What, what do you think about pumpkin spice beer? Final question. It doesn't exist for me. I don't even know what that freaking is. Man. <laughs> I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Distill it and see what happens. Yeah. Oktoberfest is as far as I go. Yeah. Hey, um, let me give it a, a random plug because the uh, episode I'm releasing tonight slash tomorrow morning for people who are interested in whiskey. I've got a new podcast series called My Favorite Mistake. And my guests in this episode, which is going to be episode 11, are Dan Garrison, who is the owner, CEO of Garrison Brothers Distillery, who Jamie and I have talked about here, and um, also joined by Donis Todd, who is their master distiller. So um, they talk about, Donis shares a great story about a mistake he made in aging whiskey. He's still there. So that speaks a little bit to the culture. We hear Dan's side of that story. Dan tells the story of a mistake he made in a relationship with one of their key retail partners and what he had to do to recover from that and learn uh, from that. And then they also talk about, as they put it in their kind of central Texas way, creating a culture where people fess up to making mistakes because nothing good happens when the mistake gets hidden or covered up. So um, I want to give a little plug for that episode because that is in a different way, a fun overlap between lean and whiskey. Yes, it is. Nice. Nice. I'll, I will listen. No, thanks. So we want to thank uh, everyone again for, for listening here. Um, leanwhiskey.com is where you can find old episodes. Um, you can spell whiskey, either of the two predominant ways and that forwards to why my webpage if you would rather go to jamie's webpage that is that's jflinch.com slash lean whiskey and please do look for us on uh, if this is your first time listening because let's say you're a friend of our friend tom and you want to subscribe you can find us on apple podcasts spotify google podcasts all the usual places yeah please do you know rate us review us uh, give us feedback you know, not only do we do we take that seriously and try to make this better, even if and if it is unstructured, um, but it helps other people find it, and uh, we we do want to share uh, share the conversation more broadly. So please rate, review, subscribe, all those wonderful things. And Tom, it was wonderful having you here um, as our guest on the podcast. Thanks for joining. Yeah. Thanks for as joining, this- Tom. Thank you. Thank you both very, very much. This has been a blast. Well, good. Thank you. Wonderful. Cheers. 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 Cheers.